This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. Hi, this is Ron Thurston, author of Retail Pride, The Guide to Celebrating Your Accidental Career. And what I love about retail is that in all of its amazing forms, that it will be the industry that reconnects the world, one store team at a time, one customer at a time, one great experience at a time. From New York City, you're listening to Retail is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the retail industry. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Retail is Your Business. I am absolutely one of your hosts, Mark Rako, and Rebecca Fitz is absolutely the other one of your hosts. Um, I don't know why I introduced myself first, but I should just start with you, Rebecca. But uh, hi, how are you? Hello. Hello. I'm well. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Good. Um, You know, I just realized no one can see this because it's audio, but we appear all to be in the appropriate... um, nighttime uh thief outfit uh a black t- turtleneck of sorts so uh that we, we we have matching outfits it appears so uh anyway uh i would love to welcome ron thurston to the show ron welcome so nice to meet you thank you so nice to see both of you thank you all right uh let's start here ron i at the risk of sounding like i'm trying to be clever and i am not trying to be clever you referenced in your introduction saying what you love about retail you talk about uh accidental uh retailers and my question is and i really mean this is isn't every retailer um really isn't it all kind of an accident it, it really anyway you know, aren't we sort of tripping over ourselves for all the strategy we try to deploy and then renegotiating ourselves much like a GPS where we go down a wrong turn and we recalculate ourselves based on the current conditions and then work from there. So everything is a kind of an accident we recover from, strategize from and move on and try to avoid the next accident and get ahead of the game. That's, that's an interesting perspective on on the the subtitle of the book for sure, uh, you know. And in some ways, what you describe is exactly what I love about this industry, is that it, it's in a constant state of evolution. It is in it is in the accidents, the failures, the wins, the constant um, reinvention, the new technology, the new experiences. It's the it's one of the most exciting industries in the world. And that it it has a very traditional side, but it has a very um, kind of free form, new, like taking on new shapes all the time. And that it is often only as successful as all of the millions of people who put in the work, which is what I wrote the book really about and for, is that it's all also often an accidental career. Uh, and that it doesn't, retail doesn't require one specific kind of education or training or um, past experiences that all are welcome. All anyone can work in retail and your success or failure depends on the work you put into it and the, the companies you work for and the leaders that you have. And it, I just love this concept of people working in an industry accidentally in a business that's highly um, fluid and that we end of the day, we actually make it work. 
there's such power in that, in the idea of like entrepreneurial spirit that's so alive and well in our industry. And I, I just really can't think of too many others. Anything in service, you know, restaurants, I think, function similarly, luxury hotels. But retail is so much more prevalent and so much more active in how we evolve. And to me, I, I love the concept of it. I love the word fluid way more than accidental. I'm, I, I, <laughs> I change my question, just replace, find and replace. <laughs> well, I'll say this. We have um, lots of folks on the show where we talk about innovation, the technology side, specifically the stores, specifically e-com. Um, and we talk about um you know, folks who work in retail, but I don't know if we've ever had somebody on who, um, focus so much on, um, you know, folks who work in the stores. Um, and to me, that was certainly something that was so, so compelling. So not, not to be so one-on-one, 101, but, um, I'd love to hear a little more about what, why you wrote the book. Um, and it certainly probably speaks to, a, I know your background, but a lot about your background um, to kind of, you know, kick us off, if you will. Sure, I'd love to. Um, and, and you're right. The, the book is an output of 25, 30 years of, of experience, of retail experience, of growing up through all different levels of stores, sales, assistant manager, you know, store managers, corporate roles. Um, I worked in, in corporate visual merchandising for Gap. Um, but really, the, the bulk of my last 20 years has been in multi-store leadership. And the, the book just kept the concepts of this need in our industry to have a conversation about the importance of the teams in retail. And so when I would sit with teams and meeting with teams on my store visits and travels, meeting people in interviews, just constant conversation. There was always this, well, I kind of did this by accident and I love it, or um, really a lack of pride in what they did. They would say, oh, I work in retail. Um, you know, oh, I'm just a store manager. I am, you know, I work in a mall. There's always this kind of subtle um, lack of, lack of, just joy. And, you know, I, so I would gravitate immediately to those people. And I would say, let me tell you how important you are that you run. Okay. I'm, you say, I'm just a store manager. You run a multi-million dollar business. Let's just say that the average you know, store in a mall does two, $3 million. You run a multi-million dollar business. You are an expert in HR. You understand visual merchandising and product. You know how to serve others because you deliver a customer experience and you love doing it. You understand operational efficiencies. You understand loss prevention. You probably did some training on how to stop a shoplifter. Like the list goes on. So when I would say that to them and I said, look at all these skills that you have, you should be really proud of what you do. They almost break into tears because it's like no one's ever said that before to them that, wow, I actually do run a multi-million dollar business and I really am good at what I do. And yeah, I do work at a million dollar store in the mall, but I love it. And it's like they're afraid to say that. 
It's so funny because I sometimes say, oh, I work in retail. And then I back it up a little bit. And I said, well, I work in retail real estate. And it's not that I'm separating myself from a store associate, but, you know, and there should still be quite a bit of pride in that because, you know, the real estate side of it. It's like you're also duking it out every day in a different way. Um, So that is so, so fascinating. And I I would have to agree 100 percent being around (laughs) the industry and and folks who work in the store. And. And so the joy, the messages I've received in the last three and a half months since launch have been anywhere from, you know, people that have been in, in retail for five years to 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in retail who have said, thank you. I really like your message really resonates with me. I, I understand um, or I see more clearly now how to articulate like my joy and what I do and it, it, it's creating kind of this positive momentum in an industry that pre-pandemic was actually also, it was still under siege. But now more than ever, we also, you know, building platforms for better networking, for better support networks for each other, because it can feel, you can feel a bit isolated and a bit, um, store teams don't, aren't always well networked. They kind of, they know their mall partners and, that's the extent of it. So I'm really encouraging everyone to like step out, get to know other people in our industry, watch webinars, listen to podcasts like yours, and really like celebrate the work that you do. And it's a new message, but I, and I keep saying like it's there's never been a more important time to work in retail than right now, because Ain't that the truth. It's yeah. because <laughs> we we are now, you know, after a hundred year history of doing it similarly. Uh, but we are now reinventing what the future of this industry is. An enormous industry that's still doing, you know, depending on what you read, 75% of the commerce is still done in brick and mortar. And we are now reinventing the future. And for me, that's so, that's so exciting. So, Ron, a question for you. Um, it's such a fascinating statistic that's not to get off topic, but that, uh, as you said, 70% of retail still being done in brick and mortar. I got to be honest with you. I think that's exciting in terms of the future of retail in a way, but that to me is an alarming statistic during a pandemic that that's actually what's happening. My question for you is, I mean this very seriously, um, and I don't mean to put you in the spot of having to answer this, just that you're the one we're talking to right now. Um, what responsibility does the retail industry have to not allowing that to be happening? Me- meaning that can only happen if brick and mortar stores have enabled that to be occurring. In which case, you know, the question is, is it that it is happening, but it's being done under incredible safety protocols and that makes it possible. So therefore you've been able to maintain the in-store experience and the brick and mortar retail because the industry has adopted a just unprecedented level of safety? Or is it that the industry is simply pressed forward, feeding the appetite of shoppers to be in brick and mortar with all due respect and appreciation to all of the retailers? I think, Thoughts on that? I actually think it's a combination of both. So I think there is a standard now of safety that every customer expects. You know, I don't think now 
people are looking at at the signs on on the door or the signage in store and saying, well, are you requiring masks? Where is your hand sanitizer? It's a price of entry. So if we take Mm -hmm. that out of the equation now and say, right, making assumptions that everyone's safe and and the store team feels safe, number two, equally important, that the companies are doing everything possible to support and protect the store teams. From there, I actually think it's our own human level of engagement that's pushing us back into stores. And that's why I said in my entry, retail is going to reconnect the world because there's no other industry. You may go to a restaurant on occasion. You may, when we start traveling, go to your favorite hotels, but you could spend a weekend and go into 15, 20 different stores and re-engage with your community, re-engage with people that you knew, meet people where you didn't before. And so all of that is reconnection. So I think we're actually doing it ourselves organically as humans. It's like we want to do it. And mm-hmm. we've, we're very uncomfortable, I can speak for myself, in the fact that we couldn't do it. And you know, even you know, as the VP of stores of Intermix, that it was highly store-centric and it has really always been you know, about being your personal style editor. And, a, and that's how we spend all of our time is styling and trend and, and working with clients uh, that we've had to figure out how to do some of that digitally. So all mm-hmm. of it is really saying, how can we reinvent our business but embrace the fact that people are going to come back? But you're going to do it differently. And I also think the customer expectations that over the last year have changed of this idea of omni-inventory, quick solutions, better um, delivery promises. So the bar has actually gone up on the tech side, and it's also gone up on the people side. And where things are, I think, if we as retailers don't deliver on the people side, then that's where the equation is going to fall apart. Because you get one more shot for the customer to come back, and if then it's like, well, why am I here that? I could have just ordered this on your website. Why did I come here? Right. So, like we're the, social beasts at we're the social end of the beasts, day, too. Right. Yeah. And, but I actually think our, our expectations of what that experience is going to be have are now going to be different. Mm-hmm. They're higher. It puts more pressure you know, on us. You know, it's interesting that you say that. It makes me think of the fact that um, more and more with the, with the, the omni-channel approach, you know, and more and more stores – even if you're in store, there's still an e-commerce connectivity there. Your associates are more highly educated and more tech savvy and know more about the business because that's been what's been necessary. And um, and they they are a, a, a walking, talking connectivity to 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 the digital side of the business many times too. So my my question is, you know, in terms of having pride uh, in the work that you do. What do you think about the idea that this, you know, think, because when you have a luxury retail environment, most associates in a true luxury store, they are subject matter experts. They, they, they are often expert salespeople. They understand that business and that client in a way that your average associate in your average mall retail store may not necessarily always but it seems like we are gravitating more and more towards that. Almost every associate is becoming closer to that luxury, you know, because because they're armed with technology that allows them to not just be a pants folder 
but they are a true ambassador of the of of the retail entity. So how do you think that's going to impact with that sense of pride? Therefore, um, employee retention, which means employees typically will have more accumulated experience, which changes the store in-store experience and everything is kind of in, you know, domino effect. Yeah. I love this question because the, the when I wrote my book, it's very intentionally not intended for one particular segment of our industry because I actually think and as someone that has worked in luxury the glamour and the conversations often air on the luxury side because mm-hmm. it's more there's more money there's there's the clients are more you know willing to spend you have more tech all all of that um, feels a little easier but I mm-hmm. actually and I also sit on the board of directors for goodwill and what I what I love about that role is that you know, Goodwill is founded entirely mm-hmm. on donations, funding people getting back to work and training programs. I mean, there's 60 um, outlets of just um, like training centers just here in New York, New Jersey, funded by Goodwill, funded by donations. But my point is, you know, I visit Goodwill stores and I meet the most incredible leadership teams who are very proud to run Goodwill stores, who run, again, run multi-million dollar businesses entirely generated on donations at an average sale of $7. And I run a luxury business with, you know, an average sale that's 10 times that. But we both do the same work. And to this idea of pride in the industry, I agree with you, Mark, is we can't say that 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 is, that is only available to luxury and it, or that parts of the industry should be more proud to work in than others. Because the cost, what has happened is the cost infrastructure of stores puts a lot of pressure on payroll. And so then, therefore, there are probably fewer people. And therefore, every one of those people have to be that subject matter expert. Uh, there's, I had shared a story recently, too. Like I saw on LinkedIn, a district manager for Dollar General was posting um, like bulletin boards from all of her um, all of her stores of like a gratitude wall. And she was asking for people to vote on the best bulletin boards in the back of house of a Dollar General store about gratitude. I'm like, that is retail pride at its core. And like that, and she was so happy and so excited about these back of house stock rooms. And I just, like all of those stories just say, it's not about price. It's not about who your customer is. It's not, it's about, an energy and a feeling and a drive to do your best work all the time. And I think people, this is what I always say about retail and I haven't worked retail in a long time. I've been lucky enough to work for some retailers who have said, everybody's going to work a couple hours on black Friday. And it's, it's a gift to you actually, if you work for on the corporate side, um, leap, certainly, you know, when your first week, you should go work one of the stores. Um, what I always say about it is that, you know, real brass tack stuff, which, Ron, I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit. Sometimes you're standing up for, you know, not eight hours at a time. I think that's illegal now. But um, uh, one of the biggest things I say is you're dealing with the public. And so you have no idea what's coming. You know, if I sit at a desk, I know what calls are scheduled for the day. I know who's coming in on those calls most of the time. I know who's going to walk into my proverbial office or through my Slack. Um, And I think when you're on the retail floor, 
you have no idea who's coming in that day, no idea their personality, no idea what, you know, they've been through, what they're, they're shopping for. Um, and I think there's probably some really, really hard stories on that and, and hundreds of millions of them. And then, you know, other really beautiful stories, I'm, you know, someone shopping for a dress for a funeral or, or a wedding or whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, it is a really hard job, I guess, is, is my, you know, and, and we don't talk about it that often. I give this spiel every once in a while, but certainly not as much as I probably should. Yeah, it's it is hard. But I what I would say is, although they also love it, that's what actually people love about it, is that every day you open the door and you don't know who's going to come in. I actually love that of like, you know, being a store manager and saying, Okay, how many people are we going to meet today? Who's who's going to have the first story about asking someone, "What do you do? Tell me about your closet. Where are you from? Why are you here? Like, what? Who's going to be the first one to tell me a story about about a client? Who's going? How highly curious can you be to learn? And so, the most successful, particularly those salespeople like you described, Mark, are the ones that are the most curious and that build relationships quickly and are are outgoing enough to say. Okay, I'm ready. Open the door. Let's see who I meet today. And actually just can't wait to do it. And, you know, what I heard and experienced myself is, you know, coming back last year, people were not in a great mood. So then we actually had to go out of our way to like, oh, my gosh, I'm so happy that you're back. Like, come on in. Let me show you what's come in recently. And like kind of change the energy and change the mood. Because masks, you know, do we struggle with that as an industry. What if you could tell your story, the story of your brand, your product, the compelling story of the sourcing of materials or ingredients, or even tips for getting the best use out of your products? What if you could engage your consumer, amplify their experience, or even improve conversion or initiate sales at points they don't usually happen? What if you could connect with your consumer wherever they happen to be, in the store, on your website, in the bathroom, or even on the go? What would that be worth to you? It's time you learned about StoryDot from Mouth Media Network. Short-form audio stories consumers can access with their smartphone, in brick-and-mortar locations, on physical product, or even embedded into your website. It's where commerce, advertising, and the consumer meet. Being competitive requires every advantage you can implement. So discover StoryDot today at www.storydot.com. That's www.storidot.com. Public in general, I think, you know, there are exceptions, obviously, especially in high-level retail stores or, or, or you know, I mean, like, you're going to think differently about the local used car salesperson than you are the Bentley salesperson who dresses impeccably and is in a beautiful luxury environment and just who walks in there. You, you're just but, – but it doesn't mean they're any less or more knowledgeable about their cars or take their job seriously or good at the job that they do. I think a lot of this probably comes from 
number one, just the fact that in at least some cases, especially really big box stores, you know, low level retail uh, jobs um, are often ones that, you know, even a beginning teenage worker can get, which makes us think differently about the challenges that may be involved, especially if we ourselves are not familiar. Secondly, I think it's certainly reinforced by, if nothing else, um, you know, TV and movies and so forth that stereotype retail workers in a certain way. We don't focus, you know, and, and then uh, the, the luxury workers are pretentious and the, the low-level retail workers are goofing around or unskilled or whatever. And that's just not necessarily representative of the reality. So my question is, what can the retail industry do, the retail leaders, lobbyists, um, uh, thought leaders such as yourself, um, as, as well as people like yourself that are practically in the industry in leadership roles, do to start affecting the public sentiment and assumptions and stereotypes, begin that re-education process that we are not the retail associates of the 1950s anymore. We Actually, the 1950s might have even been a, a higher class uh, in people's minds, you know, because it was such a high class experience. So let's call it the 1990s. And, uh, and, 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 and the need for, like we were talking about before, sorry to go on a monologue here, but the, the need for the skill level and the understanding of technology and the understanding of e-commerce to, to execute that job in many cases really takes some skill level education and effort and experience. So how do we start educating people and make them care? So, so I, to your kind of question on the – Other than writing a book. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the book was really so that those teams kind of care too, like that they care yes. about that role. But the you know, part of it is compensation. So I think we also just have to recognize the fact that those entry-level roles in those jobs are often minimum wage. And so the more that we can – influence our ability to compensate people fairly because you're right 20 years ago you know if i were you know all, all those stories were heard about walmart greeters you know maybe re retirees who were walmart greeters they didn't have to know how to use four different apps at the same time and safety protocols and the job has become really complicated and so i actually think even the most entry-level roles in stores there's a level of um, skill that is required so i think Compensation is first, and companies that can find ways. And I love the recent story around Target giving everyone a bonus, five hundred dollar bonus. You know the, those kinds of stories put Target kind of at the top of of the pack when it comes to employer of choice for those entry level. They were, I think, also paying like paying fairly, you know, in above minimum wage, and then with bonuses. Like so, I would say that's number one. Number two is then it's leadership at every level for companies, understanding that those people are not disposable, that those people are often still learning, learning how to work. It's their first jobs. They're actually, you know, I love the story of the idea that people that we influence first, first job in retail and that those young people may still live at home. So you know, your, your your parents or you're anxious, you're sending your 17-year-old off to work at Target. They come home and your parents say, well, gosh, like Ron, how was work today? And we as retail leaders have the ability to influence their perception of what it means to work. 
And were they provided feedback? Were they given great training? Were they around other motivated people? Were you given tasks that you felt like you could accomplish? And all that's controllable. Or did they have this, like, yeah. you checked in on your first day, wait, who am I supposed to see? What's going to happen today? Well, no, you're supposed to be over there, Ron. And then you go home yeah. and your parents say, well, how was work? And you're like, it was terrible. Like, I yeah. felt like I, I failed I was confused. Today. I didn't know where to go. I was given bad tasks. I, I agree. And by the way, it's so interesting because I, I think you and I have come up through the industry where it used to be. A hundred percent turnover on retail associates of a certain level, not not the store manager, not the district manager, but on that real base level. And it would frankly kind of hurt my heart. Um, But, you know, if you've done that kind of work, you're like, wow, I untangled hangers today and I don't know what what my boss's name is. That's not really that exciting. And no wonder there's 100 percent turnover. You know, I think so often, especially younger people going into retail jobs, they're thinking of this as a stopover. Not the beginning of an adventure or a journey um, that could be their exciting life. And I don't mean being, a you know, um, a hanger organizer, but I mean, like, this is just the first stop. And, and from the very beginning, my employer is going to invest in my future, even if it just means that while I'm folding my hangers, they've provided me with educational podcasts to listen to that are only available to store associates through some sort of uh, intranet that that is about educating me not just on how to sell in the store better but about how to be a better person how to sell in general business strategies and i'm investing in you so that as you come up through our ranks you're skilled but also i'm just going to help put you out into the world better than when you when you came into us if i knew as a store associate that that's the world i was walking into i would be excited about that and um and and I think that we could look at retail stores as an um, uh, a, a kind of um, um, incubator, if you will, for the next generation of of great retail executives. I I agree. I and I agree with Rebecca. I think that that was the standard. You know, when I started, you know, I'm going to say the '80s, that you, know, you kind of chose certain companies based on their training programs. Macy's, you know, Gap. Gap was my choice and the limited brands. So you would choose these companies that you would say, I know I can, they have great training programs. I can build a career. You know, and I chose Gap and spent 10 years there. And I felt like every step along the way, someone was there to say, well, that guy seems like he knows what he's doing. Like, let's give him the next role. Let's give him more volume. You know, I became a district manager. Then I became a regional manager. So like my career kept growing. And I bounced between brands. They say, well, I love what you do at Gap. Then I went to Banner Republic. Then I went to Outlet. Then I went back to Gap. So I, like this idea of, of constant mentoring and training is somewhat missing. And a lot of it is cost. And a lot of it is reduction in, in learning and development departments and just this lack of investment. So what I continue to talk about is the future is really that investment early on that happens and leaders who can recognize that great talent and bring them along. There's a woman who um, I'm connected with. I was a store manager at Banana Republic. I remember it really clearly, Houston Galleria. And she was 17, still in high school. 
actually two two of these people, uh, who this was 1997-ish, 96, 97, and she continued on through like a Neiman Marcus training program after that, and today is a vice president of planning with Neiman Marcus. And you know, someone else in that same group, he was also in high school, is a regional manager, you know, today for uh, Lacoste. And so, like, there's stories of you can mentor and you can you can help people along, but it it also requires an extraordinary amount of energy and drive when you don't have the company behind you to do that. Right, but you know, it, it, it the difference is I think a lot of brands are investing in their associates. They're not investing in the people that are the associates. So if I realize that I know that the vast majority of my associates aren't going to end up in those executive positions someday because this is not what they're going to choose. There's many influences in life. But if I invest in those people, I know that the people that remain with me are going to be are going to be um, prepped quite well. Um, and the people who leave will leave thinking very positively about my brand. And not that that was that crappy experience I had when I was 17, but instead of, yeah, I moved on, but wow. Um, such an interesting decision that would be for a brand. I'm not saying nobody ever does that, but to, to make with that thinking and, um, and, and have it be strategic, not just, we want to be great people, but, but, you know, it's just like the other thing, too, is, you know, it can be something as simple as, like I said, sorry, I know I'm, we're an audio company, but but like, you know, creating an incredible um, buffet of incredible short form podcasts and encourage um, anyone who's in a position to do it to listen at work or outside of work. And we'll make this all available to you. And it's our way of investing in you and your future. And and some will take it and some won't. But you only have to produce that once and it's good for every employee. And they can listen on their own phone and there's no ongoing expense except whatever internal promotion you do to keep educating people that this is available. It's, it's sort of a one-time investment, uh, if you will. I, whatever the solution is, I love this idea of because doesn't pride come from recognizing that you have something to be proud of? It, it does. And, you know, this idea of it being very intentional around I'm proud of what I do because that you have, you know, almost like internal speaking points of you know, that there's investment happening. There is um, cultural great cultural programs with the company. I feel like I belong. I feel like I have opportunity for growth. You know, all of these things at the entry level roles, if they see this happening around them, then they say, you know, I'm proud to work here because I know I have opportunities. I can earn more income. I can take on stretch assignments. I can take on temporary roles. Like when you see all that happening, there's an immediate sense of I'm going to stay here and I'm really proud to work for this company and I'm proud yeah. of what I do. And I don't. I just don't think we hear that enough. I don't think we hear that language enough in our industry. Agreed. And it's interesting. I um, used to adjunct at some fashion colleges in New York, and one of the things that they tried to do, but it was within academia, is say, 
retail is a real industry and a real job. And every once in a while, they'd have somebody come who, you know, worked at Target, but now is the lead person at Fendi or whatever. And, you know, what that was, but it was just this small little message about really what a career in, in retail was. And I, I certainly think that the book, um, helps do that. Um, one of the things that Mark and I sometimes talk about, and I'm going to put this back on you, Ron, is, um, you know, is there a special message that you want to get out or something particular, um, you know, in doing the show? And Ron and I were talking um, before the show started. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that we were talking about is that the book has many, many layers. Um, and mm-hmm. so we've talked about the the number one layer uh, of the book. But I'd love for you to talk a little bit about some of the other layers to the book, uh, particularly maybe your experience that you did today and and we're we're living in a very interesting time, I think, for sure. And it, it lends itself to some of the things that the book uh, highlights. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and when it's, when when I was writing the book, they really encourage you to have kind of an avatar of like, who exactly do you want this, to read this book? And in my head, it was, you know, kind of a 22-year-old young woman who worked at a mall in the middle of America that her friends and family just continue to tell her that she needs to quit and find something else to do. Maybe she was like an assistant manager. And I like, I don't know why this young woman kept sticking out to me. I'm like, she needs to hear this. She needs to know that she has such great opportunities in front of her. And, you know, when you try to write a, a book about too many, for too many different people, that's their advice, is that it kind of, then you, then you have a message to no one. So if that young woman read, read my book, I think she would get exactly what I intended. But what has happened is executive teams have seen this and said, wow, really, I've never worked in stores, and I appreciate that this is how it can feel. I've had um, long-term multi-store leaders or people reach out and say, my team needs to hear this um, because they need to feel energized. But there's... But then there's been other like subsets of this. Um, so, for example, to, I had shared with Rebecca today, I spoke to the LGBTQ um, employee group for Office Depot. And they had asked me to speak because they had seen the book and said, we love the message of retail pride, but we also love the fact that you are an out gay man. And this kind of combination of pride in who you are and, pr- and pride in what you do is a really important message. So I, I loved doing that today. I had such a blast because they, that's also in those employee groups, also not always well documented as that it's like the secret group of a company. And, and there were a hundred plus people on this call and, and their executive team that were really appreciative of, of that kind of message. So there's, there's so many layers that I think can happen when you, have a louder voice about what you understand and want to communicate out to the world. And that's, for me, it's been such a joy to, to bring that to the industry that I, that I love, but more importantly, just like the, the millions of people that work in it and, and, and that they need to kind of see this and, and pick it apart and pull out a quote or two. You know, the book is very energetic in its fonts and its print, and you know, that's all very intentional. You should just be able to open one page and be like, oh, I like that. Like that, that's going to get me going today. That's enough. That's there. 
the color, like the, the cover is intentionally loud. Uh, and so that all of that is, is I think been a joy. Have you, have you considered doing some produced version of that? That's like audio or video or something that gives you an opportunity to, um, let's say to add a multi-sensory splash to it. Do you know what I mean? Like, like how can you, uh, bring it to more, to more people to get that word out? What, what's in the works to proselytize? Yeah, there's a, there's a few, I feel like it's, that audience is the hardest one to get because they're not really listening to podcasts like these. You know, they're not really industry insider experts. They know that they can't change the industry. So I'm fine. Yeah, it may be like television. It may be other media forms or something um, to make sure that the audience um, gets out there um, and see. So, yeah, there's there's some things in the works for sure. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, seems like like. I don't mean to sound like an idea, man. I'm, I'm aligning with what you're saying. It, you know, I, like I can see like short sort of comedically based like, um, YouTube videos, for example, that, that, um, almost like little webisodes that are, it could, could, with the right person, um, maybe you, you know, hosting them or acting them out, it could have, could have power because it operates on its own, even if you don't realize you're being, Inspired. Yeah. I, I also think I had mentioned networking earlier. It's also providing those resources. I am hosting, calling it Saturday mornings with Ron, just a live open Zoom mm -hmm. for people to jump on and connect and use like breakout rooms and things. And you know, three weeks in, yeah. there's already a lot of new connections being made. Are you using Clubhouse, Ron? I am using Clubhouse. Yeah, I've hosted actually the first group last night mm -hmm. on it. So same. There's a lot of great conversation happening there yeah. um, to, to keep this to keep it going. We're in a very um, you know interesting time that none of us are you know were around during the Spanish flu. Um, you know, I just know companies are trying to be more thoughtful. You know, furloughing people and you know bonusing them to come back to you and then somebody else. And so it it, it makes me very happy. But it's it's a topic that is enormous but has really missed having a voice. So it was um, extremely enjoyable. And I've certainly <laughs> recommended it to um, lots of folks. It's great. Yeah. It, it's been like the, the energy behind it was really needed right now. And I think it, it, it was necessary a year ago, but it's really necessary today. Mm -hmm. And that, 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 is, that is how we will reinvent this business is only through the people that work in stores and their pride in what they do. That's it. There's no other, there's no secret sauce to that. And it's all people and it's all their level of engagement and they're, yeah. they're feeling that they're coming along for the journey. Because what it, the dark side of it is that all the cost has been ripped out of stores. And you know, now, now I don't have all the, I don't have as many coworkers I don't have, I'm open shorter hours. Just all the thing, all the pressure that's put back on stores now um, is really intense. That's what I continue to hear, just industry-wide. And then we're adopting all this new technology on top of it. So there's a whole different skill set and pressure that comes with it. Well, you know, I guess it's all how close to the sun you're willing to fly. You know, there's a lot of reward there the closer you, you're willing to get, I guess, so. Um, all right. Well, Ron, this seems like a wonderful moment to pause briefly. And when we come up, up next, 
some personal questions where we talk to Ron a little more on the human side right after this. Culture starts at the top and great customer experience, the only competitive strategy in today's world, is fueled by great leadership. We hear and read this every day, but many brands don't drive customer-first strategy. For those at the top who want to make that leap but don't know how, we'll learn from leaders who share what you must do to become customer-centric. I am Liliana Petrova, and this is The One Thing. The One Thing, Customer Experience from the Top, is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever the best podcasts are found. Ron, this is the part of the show when we get personal, my okay, friend. Okay, I'm ready. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, Rebecca, you you know Ron comparatively more than I do. Um, I would love if you'd be willing to lead off and I'll follow your uh, your lead. Sure. Um, I, I've used this one a lot, but I still think it's very interesting. Um, what uh, hobby or uh, new activity have you picked up uh, due to the pandemic? It's a good question. So <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I've learned how to be a guest on podcasts now. <laughs> That's a great answer, by the way. It is. It is a great answer. I, so I was expecting maybe like doing puzzles, but this is, you know. Maybe that for sure. Um, <laughs> but I've learned how to um, work out at home, which I don't enjoy at all. I love the gym. I'm a weird one that way. I love going to yoga classes. I love going to the gym. I love seeing my friends at the gym. I miss all of that. And so sadly, I, I am the guy with the yoga mat in my 800 square foot New York apartment trying to right. like navigate yeah. the furniture and do yoga. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not enjoying it at all. Nor am I right beside <laughs> you. The first time I did it uh, and, you know, a mirror fell off the wall. I decided there's no ju- no jumping involved in whatever yes. activity I'm going to do. So, um, yeah, I, I'm almost willing to put on the double mask and, you know, get out there because it's it sorely, sorely missed something I didn't really want to learn how to do. But yes. So baking, puzzle making that that was nothing you picked up hardcore. I No, not at all. <laughs> That's why it needs to work out, Rebecca. Right? <laughs> well, there was a lot of that baking, balance, right? yeah. too. Yes, exactly. yes. I'd like to go back to childhood a little bit, your childhood, just to be specific. You know, think about a memory that you have going way back the first time that you remember being in a store when it created wonder for you or magic or something that stuck with you even to this day. It doesn't have to be a specific thing. It could be more of a general experience, but I'm curious if anything strikes you comes to mind. So I grew up in South Lake Tahoe, California, very, very small town. And it's small today, but it was really small then. And my family was very integrated in, into South Lake Tahoe, but there was nowhere to shop. So we would take the drive down the mountain to go to San Francisco. So I was that weird little boy, as you may imagine, who refused to wear the same clothes as my brothers and would that were basically like navy blue corduroys, navy blue or brown corduroys from Sears. 
I was like, I'm not, my mother will still to this day was like, I don't know where you got your style opinions at the age of four, but you would clearly not wear anything. So we would take the drive four hours plus to go to downtown San Francisco to Union Square and to go shopping, mostly at my request. And I remember that very clearly going into a beautiful downtown Union Square, San Francisco stores, you know, like Emporium or um, I Magnin, Joseph Magnin, like these stores that just seemed like such a fantasy to me uh, and and definitely did some fun shopping at the same time. But I, re I remember that very clearly. And it started, you know, when I left home and moved, that's where I moved to San Francisco to go to school. And it was still very much a wonder space for me. Mm. That's nice. Nice to go back to that in, yeah. in your head. Yeah. yeah. I also will laugh uh, though because I, you know, went to fashion design school and I would, I learned how to make my own clothes. Mm -hmm. And so there's this whole trend, we, trend this year of like kind of 80s asymmetrical, you can kind of unbutton it down one side and, and pull it over. That's a big trend this year. And with big puff sleeves. Well, the shirt, I remember on the first day of college, I made myself that was asymmetrical and snapped on one side. And it was black. And when you unsnapped it, it was white on the other side. I was so proud to wear that shirt because I had made it myself. And I think back now, I'm like, I cannot believe I wore this stuff. But <laughs> Oh, my God. And, and now it's back in vogue. Everything that is old is new again. So I mean, true. come on. <laughs> so true. I was just... I was just saying that to my wife yesterday. I was like, you know, people are going to be looking at us 20 or 30 years from now and going, oh, my God, what were we wearing? <laughs> Look at our makeup and our hair. It's crazy. And, you know, it's kind of joggers, so athleisure. <laughs> we always think we're hot at the time, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, Ron, how can people find the book? How can they get a hold of you directly, whether that's. Email, LinkedIn, social, what have you. Yeah, you go to retailpride.com. The, there's links to the book for Amazon. There's also a bulk buying link on there um, through the publisher. So like uh, bigger brands that have or vendors have bought like 10, 20 plus copies of the book, you can get at a discount for your teams um, versus Amazon. Uh, and then there's other uh, media or the Saturday Mornings with Ron that I referenced. It's all on on retailpride.com and then LinkedIn is, and there's links to LinkedIn on there too, but I'm super active on there um, and host a lot and, and write a blog um, at the same time that gets posted. So it's pretty easy to find me. You don't have to search too hard. All right. Well, Ron Thurston, clearly a, uh, a true retail industry thought leader uh, with a lot of experience to back it up. And of course, author of Retail Pride, the guide to celebrating your accidental career. Go and pick it up right now. Right now. Just stop the podcast. Go <laughs> and do it. Um, Ron, all, all kidding aside, thank, thank you very much for joining us. It was, it was a genuine pleasure and very insightful. Thank you. I really had fun today. Some questions no one's ever asked me before. That's what we try to do. <laughs> Trying to one-up ourselves. Hopefully never run out of gas, but so far today we're all right <laughs> thank you thank you uh that's it everybody for this really fun and and uh very enjoyable uh, episode of retail is your business i hope you agree we'll see you next week thank you for coming along for the ride until next time for rebecca fitz thanks mark thanks for listening thank you i'm mark rico have a great day bye-bye 
This has been Retail is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2020. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Audio for business.